Well, good morning. If you open up your Bibles to Matthew, what a surprise. Matthew chapter 19. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We just come and acknowledge you as the God who loves us. And we say thank you for that. Thank you for loving us and sending sending Jesus. I ask that you would help us to listen to his words to us today. We would receive them as they are. You would help us to understand them. Help us to be changed. We thank you for the good news that everything is possible with you. And without you, everything important is impossible. So just help us today, Lord Jesus. Amen. So what's the most important thing in your life? What do you feel like you can't live without? What are the circumstances that would bring you to trade that thing, whatever it is, for something else? Anything come to mind? If someone told you today, quite unexpectedly, without any amount of warning or preparation, that you had to give up this thing that you value the most, that you value more than anything, would you do it? Imagine yourself down in Santa Rosa last week on the night of the worst fires, and I know they're still going, but on that night, being awoken in the middle of the night to pounding on the door and an unfamiliar, loud voice calling out for you to leave, hurriedly and loudly telling you, don't get dressed. I know it's 3 a.m., but don't get dressed. We have to go right now and leave everything. Would you do it? Would you leave everything? That's what one elderly lady that I talked to last week was asked to do. What would you grab? Would you stay? Well, she she left. She did ignore part of the demand, though. She actually stayed for a few minutes to get dressed. She didn't go in her jammies. And then she fled to safety. Well, our scripture passage this morning raises these kinds of questions for us. Jesus quite unexpectedly demands something from someone that feels like an impossible request. As we've been learning in Matthew, Jesus is one controversial rabbi. His viewpoints about what's important is quite different than the culture of the Roman Empire, than the culture of the religious leaders. It's different in that what he views as important the cultures around him view as not that important. He makes the law harder to keep than it might have seemed on the surface. He has a much higher view of marriage than many religious, particularly men of the day, did. He made the sick well, he made the demonized whole, but then he went and welcomed sinners surrounded himself with marginalized people that others looked down upon. He even called for amputating body parts 
instead of engaging in our sin. So Jesus isn't like an inspirational speaker who's just ready to come pat us on the back. He makes really high demands for all of us. Nor is he like the evangelist during the altar call who asks us just to close our eyes and raise our hands if we want God's wonderful plan for our lives. Instead, Jesus, as we've been learning, is the controversial king that he's calling people to leave everything. He's calling us to leave everything. The big kingdoms of this world, the many little kingdoms we set up inside of our hearts and follow him. Today's passage is a popular one. The story is in Mark's gospel. It's also in Luke's. I don't believe it's in John's. So this one had its effect on the disciples. This one was known. It's about a nice religious young man. He's probably between the ages of 20, maybe 24 and 40 years of age. So he's young, which means I got one more year. He's the kind of guy who'd probably make a really good husband. He's classy, clean cut. He's a rule follower. Likely never even had a fix-it ticket. He's driven, ambitious. He's got a good career. He's got a retirement plan. He's well spoken of in the community. And so he's a great young guy with a bright future in front of him. But he's got a nagging issue. Even though life has been good to him, and he's been pretty good to everyone else, he's concerned about the next one, the life thereafter. He knows that he's going to die. He knows death is coming. He knows God exists. He's familiar with God's law. And he wants to make sure that he's got all of his bases covered. So he goes to the most controversial and the most popular teacher of the day, Jesus, to get an answer to this question. That which keeps him up at night, he's probably pretty sure he can handle it once he hears it, once he hears what the answer is. So that takes us to today's text, Matthew 19, verse 16. We're just going to kind of walk through it. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So right off the bat, we see his perspective He believes that there is something he can do to get eternal life. As long as he checks all the right spiritual boxes, that he is good to go for heaven. And this is a question that all of us at some point in our lives ask. What is it that we have to do to get to heaven? What are we going to do when we die? Even if you're agnostic or were agnostic, you wonder if there is a God, will I have done enough? To live forever. Will he accept me? Or maybe we just assume he will. Because we're such great people. But really, when you press on that feeling, that uncertainty, you know that you have some ugly things in your life. That no one or only a few know about. So he's coming to Jesus asking the question. And what does Jesus do? 
he asks him another question. I love it when Jesus does this. Someone has a question for him as if they're putting all the responsibility on him and he kind of turns it around to get behind the question and asks another one to probe behind the reason for the questioner's question. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So this is really huge. It actually is the ultimate answer to the man's question, even though Jesus follows up with another answer. I think that this question in the second sentence here is where the good news is. Why are you asking me this? Jesus says, there's only one good. Who? God. God is the only one who is entirely perfect, completely, capital G, good. And if that's true, it means two things. God is good and we humans are in trouble because we're not good. That's what it means. But Jesus goes further and seems to kind of give him what he wants to hear. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Let's look at 18 and 19. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so notice how the man ignores the first question that Jesus asked. He just wants to get to business on fulfilling the commandment checklist that Jesus gave him. It's like he pounces on the second part. He doesn't even bother with the first thing that Jesus says. It's like he's thinking, I got this covered. That's a good answer, Jesus. But let me just double check real quick and see which ones I might have missed. Which ones, Jesus? So Jesus gives him the list. And it's pretty much the plain vanilla stuff, right? It's basically the latter part of the Ten Commandments. Be sure not to kill anyone. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't cheat anyone else out of anything by stealing from them. Don't lie to people. Don't lie about people. Treat your parents honorably. And then Jesus throws in a little something special. He gives them a, a little bit of a curveball. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which wasn't in the Ten Commandments. And I find it interesting that Jesus didn't bring up the greatest commandment to love God. But I think he did in verse 17. And that's because for this man, money was this man's God. He was an idolater. He loved his stuff. He loved his religiosity. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And that's interesting. He knows that something is wrong inside of him. He knows that something is still wrong. Why didn't he just stop right there and say, good, I got it. I'm good to go. Death isn't going to be a problem. I'll see you later, Jesus. I'll see you up in heaven. 
I've kept those commandments. He doesn't say that. He says, what do I still lack? So he knows that there is still something wrong in his heart. And if he knows that he still got issues after obeying, even if on the surface, but after obeying all those commands, then I have a really jacked up heart. Because I have broken some of those commands. Because there's no way I can say to Jesus, all things I have kept, I've kept all those, Jesus. I wouldn't be saying that. But this man somehow could. It seems that his conscience is clearer than mine, but it's not totally clean. It still pains him. This man is a perfectionist, a religious pro, and he's doing pretty well at it. But he still knows he's missing something. 21 to 22. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Jesus knows his heart. Jesus is like an unexpected raging firestorm that asks this man to give up everything. To follow him. Jesus knows that this guy is a good guy. He knows that he's better than most of his disciples. But Jesus isn't looking for people with a perfect religious record. That's not who he's looking for. He isn't looking for squeaky clean. He's looking for people who will leave everything to follow him. He's looking for people who will run away from their stuff and run to him. You see, Jesus wanted this man to die to his social status, to die to his very identity, which was his wealth. That's what it was. And for him, that was too much. I can't do that. I can do anything your law says. But to leave everything, to give all that I have to the poor and to go after you, I can't do that. So he leaves Jesus, a young, rich and heartbroken man. This man was the opposite of that famous Jim Elliott quote. If you remember Jim Elliott, he was a missionary who died at the hands of those he went to give the good news to. And in his journals, he wrote this memorable line. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So this young man, unlike Jim Elliott, did not give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And therefore, he was a fool. He was a fool. A law keeper that was a fool. This man in the other Gospels, though not here, is called a rich young ruler. And if world history shows us anything, you can be a ruler of men and women and be a total fool. In the Old Testament, we see the richest ruler of them all, King Solomon, spent much of his life as a fool. The book of Ecclesiastes, which we read, it may have been written by Solomon. 
A man of vast possessions had everything he could ever want, experienced every kind of sensual pleasure anybody could ever imagine. So he had the power of Donald Trump. He had the harem of Hugh Hefner. He had the portfolio of Warren Buffett. And he realized it's vanity. It's meaningless. It's nothing. While lacking nothing, he lacked everything. He did not fear the one good God and keep his good commandments. He spent much of his life clinging. If you go back to 1 Kings, it talks about how his heart clung to, I believe it said his wives. His heart clung to other things. His possessions instead of the God who gave him the wealth he enjoyed. Remember, God gave it to him. It was a good gift. But he clung too tightly. So the rich young ruler that Jesus talks to here has a similar problem. He may be following the rules more than Solomon, but he is clinging to his wealth more than God. His money has his heart. It's his greatest prize. He's happy to do things for God except give up his treasure. And so the way to ultimate happiness is not our wealth, which means every commercial we've ever seen is lying to us. The American dream is just that. It's a dream. It's going to end. You can be an American. You can reach the American dream and it will end. And this young man knew that. He had the dream, yet something was missing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been looking to guarantee eternal life. He knew his wealth wasn't enough to satisfy him. Yet when he found the way to the greatest reward that he actually wanted, he couldn't part with what he valued most. Being wealthy doesn't guarantee more joy or even more of a sense of safety and security. Interestingly, Boston College did a study on the super rich. These are those who had at least 25 million. And I think the average was like 80 or something. In 2011, the Atlantic magazine had access to this before the study was published. And it reveals the kind of discontent of this young man is what the Atlantic magazine said. The respondents turn out to be a generally dissatisfied lot whose money has contributed to deep anxieties involving love, work, and family. Indeed, they are frequently dissatisfied even with their sizable fortunes. Most of them still do not consider themselves financially secure. For that, they say, they would require an average one quarter more wealth than they currently possess. Remember, this is a population with assets in the tens of millions of dollars and above. That's what the writer puts in. One respondent, the heir to an enormous fortune, and this is really interesting, says that what matters most to him is his Christianity. And that his greatest aspiration is to love the Lord, my family, and my friends. He also reports that he wouldn't feel financially secure until he had $1 billion in the bank. So wholeness never comes from financial security. It's not going to happen. Perfection, what Jesus talks about here, and by that Jesus means completion, maturity, wholeness. It can only come to those who will give up their greatest value 
to follow Him. And so Jesus invites us to a greater reward that's only found in Him, a greater contentment. But He asks that we do something, and that's die to everything. That we give away our status, our identity, the things we cling to inside our hearts, and find a new identity in Him. And this is hard. This is unbelievably hard. Jesus knows he's not asking something that's easy. 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So there are some weird things out there about this particular metaphor that Jesus gives about camels fitting through needles' eyes to try to make the imagery easier. But they're probably not true. Camels are big. Needles' eyes are very small. And that's the point. Large camels do not fit through eyes of needles. It does not happen. And the parallel, rich people don't get into heaven, is what Jesus is saying, unless there's a miracle, right? The camel's not going to fit, no matter what. Rich people aren't going to get into heaven, no matter what, unless... And here's the thing, we can't read Jesus' warning as if he is just warning those that the Boston College study was referencing. None of us think we're rich because we're always comparing ourselves to someone who's richer. None of us do. We always are comparing ourselves to somebody who has more. Maybe somebody who has more in this very group of people. So we each define rich as someone richer than me. But all of us Americans are rich. Let's say you are at the poverty rate for an individual in the United States. That's around $16,500 a year. $16,500. And if you are, that wouldn't be surprising because actually the Census Bureau as of 2015 showed that 20% of people in Humboldt County are in poverty. So you think you're poor. And you are, according to American standards, it's poverty. However, according to globalrichlist.com, and this is not empirically research-based, but it is connected to a large organization to try to stop world poverty. According to that website, if you make that much money, you are in the top 6.08% of richest people in the world by income. You make more money than over 90% of others in the world. It would take the average worker in Indonesia 22 years to earn the same amount. And your monthly income could pay the monthly salaries of 62 doctors in Kazakhstan. Now, let's say those are inflated. I'm guessing they probably are. But the point holds. Many of you either make far more now or have made far more before in your life. Some of you even have decent-sized investment portfolios. You might own a home. Maybe you own a home and some other property. And your wealth is way higher than most people in the world. 
And so while many Americans freak out about the 1% of rich people, we always hear about the 1%, many of us are pretty much the 1%. We're the 1% of the world. Or maybe the 1.6% of the world. Or the 1 through 6% of the world. So Jesus is talking to us here. He's saying, are you too attached to your wealth? And only you can answer that. How do we know if we are too devoted to our money and possessions? And that's, and that's a hard question. Especially in light of the eternal consequences of our answer. Pastor Tim Keller gives us two signs that may reveal if wealth is our God. This is what he says. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, even though you might have worked harder or might be a better person, and it gets under your skin. Then it's, meaning wealth, no longer is just a tool. It's the scorecard. It's our essence, your identity. No matter how much money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. And so this power of wealth to become our idol is what Jesus is warning us against. Rich people don't enter the kingdom. And that's jolting. And it should surprise us. But I don't think it really shocks us. I think we kind of shrug it off a little bit. Because after all, most people we know, according to all these standards, are rich. And there's a bunch of Christians in that group. But the disciples didn't shrug it off. It surprised them, but it also shocked them. 25 to 26. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. If what Jesus is saying is true, the disciples are thinking, then who can possibly ever be saved? The text says they were astonished. The word indicates nearly losing one's mental composure. So they lost their mind for a moment. And the reason they lost their mind is because in their culture, there was a tendency to associate God's blessing and God's favor with wealth. And in ours, it can be similar. So if the rich who are already blessed, who are already favored by God, Because they got money. They got stuff. Those other people over there don't. Those other people across the continent don't. So if they're blessed and they're favored and they can't be saved, then who can? The rest of us average Joes, average people are toast. So Jesus looks at them. And I love it when we get details like this. You see that in, where's that? Verse 26. Jesus looked at them. Throughout this passage, when Jesus is talking, it usually just says, he said something. He said to them. Jesus said. Jesus said to him. Jesus said to his disciples. And his speaking posture isn't really mentioned. It's plain. But here it says he looked at them. He wants them not to miss what he's going to say, so he looks them right in the eye. And he tells them that salvation from a human perspective is impossible. That it's not possible for human beings to save themselves. And this is what makes Christianity unique among world religions. There is no such thing as self-salvation. There's none. You can't buy or work your way to heaven. Nothing gets you or me a leg up on anyone else. Before God, we are flattened. Let God be true and every man a liar. 
nothing except the grace of God. So if we were to treat salvation like a math equation, it would be roughly like this. Our something plus our anything equals no salvation. Our something plus our anything, no salvation. Or our something, like our commandment keeping, our following the rules, our doing whatever our particular church denomination thinks is okay to do, our something plus Jesus, no salvation, equals no salvation. Human salvation, entering into eternal life with your fallen human resources is not an option. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Therefore, our nothing plus God's everything equals salvation. Our nothing plus God's everything equals salvation. Our only hope, my only hope is the grace of God. That is it. The good news is that the perfectly good God, the one who is good, never has done anything wrong, perfectly pure, holy, righteous, just. The good news is that he is also a good and gracious Savior. Therefore, we have to die to our identity. We have to die to our social status, our wealth, our law-keeping, whatever our greatest value is. We have to get to the point where we say, my identity is not working out very well. I think all of us at different times in our lives feel that. Things are shaky. Things are tenuous. The identity of yourself isn't working. We have to say that our greatest value is not worth anything in comparison to Jesus. Because every other identity, every other value fades. Our bodies are aging. If you don't spend your retirement, you're going to give it to someone else who's going to be happy to spend it for you. Your property is going to be here long after you will. So it's going to die in your sense of your possession. And so Jesus demands our everything so that we contribute nothing. And he gives us his everything in its place. Which happens to be more than we ever had in the first place. 2 Corinthians 8.9 2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So the Son of God left the glory of his Father and put on human flesh to enter a fallen world of brokenness and pain to make people whole. Jesus came in poverty to save spiritually bankrupt men and women like us. The king divested himself of his privileges, all of his rights, so that we would renounce our highest values, our identities, our false gods, and entrust ourselves to him. And so that we can get his inheritance. Now all that didn't land on the disciples right then and there. They didn't have it all figured out. And in many ways, it doesn't for us either. (laughs) Even if we grasp it by faith, some. But these disciples did know something. They knew that they had left what they valued to follow Jesus. They were all in. Don't you love Peter's response as he's overhearing this conversation between Jesus and the rich man? I think he's thinking... 
You know that heavenly treasure thing that you mentioned? You caught this in the conversation. What's, what's in this for us? <laughs> He's not going to let that nugget from Jesus slide by. He left his identity as a fisherman to follow Jesus. So what does he get? A little self-interest. A little self-interest. 27 to 30. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I was thinking some of us have might have expected Jesus to rebuke Peter. Jesus could have said, quit focusing on you, Peter. Stop it. Quit focusing on what you get. Eternal life is just about praising God all the time. That's all you're going to do. You're just going to sing and praise God. But he doesn't because that's not the only thing eternal life is about. You see, Jesus is not ultimately against wealth and riches and rewards. He didn't come to earth to take all of our fun away. He is not here to say material things are bad, spiritually things, spiritual things are good. He's not demanding that everybody sells every single thing and go and become monks. And if he is, we're doing it wrong. In one sense, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is a prosperity gospel in this sense. It's about the ultimate enjoyment of God in the abundance of his good gifts and good creation. That's what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be all about. The issue is it's a long-term prosperity gospel, not a short-term prosperity gospel. Will you count short-term loss for long-term gain? That's the question that he's asking. In the short term, your money, your possessions should not be your treasure. Jesus is to be your treasure. He's not going to have any rival at all. So that in the long term, you will, re you will receive every kind of relational and every kind of material treasure. A bigger family, more land, more friends, more house, more property. Jesus asks us to give up whatever takes his place to follow him in the knowledge that any gift of God we give up or that God takes from us will be ours to enjoy forever. And so obviously that brings up this whole issue of heavenly reward. The desire for reward is not a bad human desire. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but a part of our faith is trusting that the reward of Jesus and all that we're going to inherit in him is greater than anything that we currently have. So faith isn't the killing of every material desire. We can't hyper-spiritualize Christianity, and we tend to. Jesus didn't do that here. The sacrifice that you and I make, whatever that is, and, and Jesus knows our hearts, he knows our greatest value. The sacrifice that we make isn't ultimate. As one person said, it's not the sacrifice we make, it's the sacrifice we trust. We bank everything on Jesus because he gives us his everything. 
He's going to a cross to die for our sins. He is rising again to restore and to remake everything right again. The new world that Jesus speaks of in verse 28 is more relational and more materialistic than this fallen one. Any relationships we've left will only increase when the new creation comes. We will have more houses, more property than we've ever had here. Our generous God then is not a miser. He's generous. He desires that His redeemed men and women enjoy the abundance of creation to its fullness. But the question that He's asking us right now is, will you lose your attachment to the most important things in your life now to attach yourself to Jesus? Will you believe that He is not inviting you into eternal sorrow, but eternal life, no matter what it costs you? Will you place your security and your hope in Him as your everything? Will He be your safety? Will He be your security? Will He be your reward? And He's not asking you to make a greater sacrifice than He Himself made. He asks us to give up everything because He gave His everything in our place. He gave His body, His blood, to cleanse us from our sins, to give us joy forever. That's what He did. And that's why we celebrate every single week communion to remind us that that is true. So let's do that. Was upon him by his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. We are healed by a sacrifice and the life that you gave. We are healed. By your grace we are saved, we are saved. He was pierced, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds. 
Bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. You guys can sing. 